Welcome to the War in Ukraine Update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with John Blacksland. John is Professor of International Security and Intelligence Studies and former head of the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the Australian National University. John is an expert on intelligence and security with a particular focus on the Asia-Pacific region. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, John. Great to be with you, Jessica. Thanks very much for inviting me. We might think that the current conflict in Ukraine is quite far away from a country like Australia and from the Asia-Pacific region, and and in some ways geographically it is. Mm. However, we've seen in recent days our Prime Minister Anthony Albanese visiting Kyiv. Anthony Albanese was also invited to the recent NATO summit that was held in Madrid. At that NATO summit, China was mentioned for the first time in the strategic concept as a systemic challenge. Mm. And certainly China's position and the way in which China-Russia relations will evolve, the position that China will take on the Ukraine conflict, could have potential security impacts also in the Asia-Pacific region. How do you see this conflict shaping or impacting security? Yeah, thanks, Jessica. So one of the effects it's having is it is hardening the resolve of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization itself. And that has enormous uh, implications, not just in the the North Atlantic area, because NATO countries actually are all over the place. United States, it's all across the Pacific and the Indian Ocean area. And that's not inconsequential. The, the effects of the war on Ukraine is having uh, beyond that as well in terms of shaping thinking about the nature of conflict. There are concerns that it's dangerous to extrapolate too much from the uh, Ukrainian experience in fighting Russia for how armed forces and how diplomacy responds in other parts of the world. As it manifests itself on the, you know, the plains of Ukraine, recognisably going to be different to anything that might happen in the the maritime domain of East Asia and the islands of the so-called First Island Chain, the the four flashpoints my colleague Brendan Taylor described of the Korean Peninsula, the East China Sea, the South China Sea, uh, and the Taiwan Strait. These are inherently more maritime spaces. There are nonetheless significant aspects of this that are being closely considered, particularly in relation to how well an armed force actually operates when uh, rhetorically it appears to have been uh, a much better place than it turns out to be. You know, Russia's performance in the opening months of the campaign certainly surprised many in, in how inept they were. You know, a lot of people thinking, well, maybe those war games that were undertaken in the past, you know, RAND has done them, various organisations have done them on the prospect of a war over Taiwan, Maybe this is too sterile. Maybe this doesn't actually take into account enough of the friction, the fog of war and the factor of human resolve. For Australia, there's there's a lot at play. Uh, the Albanese government, it appears to me, is doubling down on attempts to bolster relations in the Pacific, in Southeast Asia and beyond, in India, Japan, and of course, just recently with NATO. Rhetorically, there's quite a significant shift And the rhetoric precedes substance, I would contend, form precedes function. This, I think, is opening the door for a significant 
a recalibration of relations in the Pacific, in Southeast Asia, clearly with NATO and Europe, but potentially also with China. We're seeing this also emerge. So it's a kind of an opportune moment for a, a significant recalibration. And I think that's a really moment of opportunity for Australia. Mm-hmm. Relations between Australia and China have been tense for the last couple of years. With the war in Ukraine, it seemed that possibly this will actually mean a further securitization of our region or the further ramping up of tensions. Could there still be an opportunity for different trajectories in Australia-China relations that we're not kind of locked in now to one path or one trajectory, which is one of escalating friction? Great point, Jessica. Um, Look, the thing that strikes me is that Security pundits, uh, international relations experts tend to downplay the significance of deterrence. Weak states get pushed around. You know, there's that wonderful line from one of my favourite historians, uh, Thucydides. It's getting a little bit overworked nowadays, but uh, I'm a big fan of Thucydides, have been since I was a kid, in fact. The strong do what they will, the weak suffer as they must. By being shy and retiring, you look around the neighbourhood and you see states like the Philippines that have made enormous concessions to China, despite China being quite aggressive towards the Philippines, in the hope that that would placate. It doesn't seem to have worked. There is, a, I think, a pretty much a bipartisan view in Australia that what's best is actually speaking from a position of strength. It gets to a wonderful uh, axiom from Teddy Roosevelt, the former US president, who said, speak softly and carry a big stick. I think we've been, unfortunately, speaking a bit too loudly and carrying a stick that's a bit too small. There's clearly a need to muscle up, I think, but also speak more softly, speak more deftly, but also recognise that what we're facing in Australia's neighbourhood is not a repeat of Ukraine. China's growth and its expansion of its uh, of its interests and its footprint diplomatically security wise and economically and militarily has actually been very carefully played much more uh, deftly played than russia's approach to the use of force and you know we we kind of turned a blind eye to russian brutality in georgia in chechnya in syria Nobody really wanted to confront Russia because it's a nuclear armed power. It's very big and you know powerful, and no, nobody was prepared to do it. And it's really it took the war in Ukraine to, for us to really for the scales to fall from our eyes, if I can use that biblical metaphor, to see what Russia under Putin is actually like. It's different with China. Mm-hmm. China's not playing Russia's game. China's playing a very clever game that was addressed in part in a book that's now 23 years old called Unrestricted Warfare. It talked about media warfare, political warfare and legal warfare, amongst others. Those terms in and of themselves seemed a little draconian. And I think there was a broadly speaking a reluctance to really accept that that was the case. But if you take away the word warfare and you put competition instead, I think you get a sense of what China's actually up to. It's competing legally, politically, and economically in a way that is perfectly understandable in terms of the pursuit of Chinese national interests. 
One of the things that really strikes me as we engage in Southeast Asia, almost all of the countries for whom China is their largest trading partner, not their exclusive trading partner, but their largest one, and their greatest security concern. If you ask any of the maritime Southeast Asian states, you get that perspective. But you also get it when you ask people in countries, you know, in mainland Southeast Asia. Vietnam is the most prominent one, but Thailand and others as well look even quietly in Cambodia. Officially behind the scenes will say, look, you know, yes, of course, we're obliged to be supportive of China. But quietly, they're quite uncomfortable about the degree to which China is influencing Cambodia. We actually have considerable space here to engage constructively with our neighbours. I don't think we need to be afraid of war. China doesn't want war. There's compelling reasons for China not to want war. Mm -hmm. I agree also that it's very important to understand the character of a particular country, like not to make oversimplified analogies, like to say, oh, well, we have Russia that's engaging in a brutal war in Ukraine. So are we going to see the same thing from a rising China? And I agree with you that China is quite different and has shown that they are quite different in the way that they've gone about trying to achieve their national interests so far. And we have this quite interesting case of India, which for its own reasons has not taken as strong a stance against Russia as other countries such as Australia or Japan. And at the same time, we have this revitalization of the quadrilateral security dialogue or referred to often as the quad which involves India, the United States, Japan and Australia. And that seemed to be going quite well, I think, prior to Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. I wonder now, given that those countries are sort of sitting, maybe saying sitting on different sides is too much, but certainly Australia, the United States and Japan are sitting very much on one side and India is kind of trying to have a bit more of a neutral stance, I would say, in some ways whilst they have condemned some aspects of the invasion, et cetera. So do you see that as creating fractures in those relationships going forward? You'd think that that would be the case, wouldn't you, Jessica? Because India has been the outlier here. But it's very interesting the dynamics at play. Japan, the United States, Australia basically understand India's predicament. They understand that Russia has been a supporter of India over Kashmir, They have militarily equipped India in a way that has helped India defend itself against China. Russia has been heavily invested in in India. What we're seeing is a gradual shift in the the trilateral dynamics between Russia, India and China. Russia started supporting Pakistan. This is deeply uncomfortable for the Indians. So India, having found itself deeply committed technologically, militarily, logistically to Russia is now not wanting to squander that entirely, but find a way out of that without messing things up for itself. And what we're seeing is the United States is providing more support. They're prepared to sell them more more Western kit. Others are involved. The French are selling them kit as well. India, it appears, is slowly weaning itself off Russian technological dependence. In addition to that understanding on the part of the other quad members is a sense that you can bifurcate the the geostrategic circumstances. So you can let India have a policy towards Russia that seems uh, contradictory to the interests of the quad because of the enduring and overwhelming utility of keeping India on side in the balance of power 
dynamics for managing the China challenge. And on that front, Japan, the United States and Australia have always been closer because they're US treaty allies. And they have for now generations been increasingly interoperable with the United States, with American compatible, if not American kit. India is not in the same game. It's been, you know, it's Soviet slash Russian equipped for generations. It's slowly shifting. It's now got P-8 aircraft. It's got other US kit as well. But it essentially is it's a long way behind in terms of interoperability uh, that the other three quad partners have. So there is a degree of acceptance that the journey for India isn't rapid and it's not, it's not immediate. Uh, it will take time and needs a degree of understanding and support. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And it makes sense also that we need to be able to accept some level of complexity when it comes to the different relations between countries and with other countries. And also that that might be a process that takes time. Like, you know, a country like India can't necessarily do a quick U-turn on military capabilities that they've been building up you know, relying more on exactly. Soviet era military yeah. technologies and etc. And then, and even then, Jessica, you know, they, India still has a degree of you know, residual non-aligned sensibilities. You know, going back to the Bandung Declaration of 1955, India has always seen itself since independence as a separate, you know, not autarkic, but separate and independent, self-driving nation when it comes to foreign and defence policy. While it recognises the dynamics have shifted and it recognises the utility of being close to Japan and the United States and to a certain extent Australia, it's not emotionally comfortable there. It's not, it doesn't have a history of it. It's, it's, there's no tropes you can you can draw on easily to make that something the Indians are comfortable with. So it's, it's, going, to be a, it's going to be a journey. Finally, I just want to ask you about something that may seem a bit unrelated, but I'm curious if you think that the conflict and the way that it's having ripple effects on bilateral and multilateral relationships between various countries, if there'll be any impact also on the AUKUS trilateral security deal that was announced in September 2021 between Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States, and as part of this the US and the UK are going to help Australia to acquire nuclear-powered submarines. So this was seen as working towards, you know, a stronger deterrence stance for Australia. Do you think that the Ukraine conflict will also have an impact on the AUKUS partnership? Will it strengthen that partnership or do you see it as not really having an impact? Yeah, it's a great question. I, my sense is it has an impact. If anything, it's reinforcing the resolve of the parties to make it work. Very interesting, um, a French well-placed interlocutor said to me not that long ago, John, we don't like how you broke the agreement with France, but we kind of understand why you went for AUKUS instead. France was never going to be able to provide you the kind of security guarantee that an AUKUS arrangement would give you with the United States in particular. Mm -hmm. Just to give context for our non-Australian listeners, in entering into the AUKUS partnership, Australia actually broke a submarine deal with France, so hence the reference to France. It kind of resonated with me because the nuclear propulsion argument, I, I find compelling, to be honest. I find it compelling. The fact that conventional propulsion submarines over long distances are easy to detect, easier to detect than they've ever been before. 
and for Australia, even if you don't want to go anywhere else, even if you just want to transit from Darwin to Perth, you are detectable. Even Perth to Perth to Melbourne to Adelaide, Sydney, these are massive distances. So for any Australian submarine to operate anywhere, not just against China in the South China Sea or anything like that, which is, you know, the worst kind of extreme scenario. If you just want to operate around Australia inside our exclusive economic zone, you're detectable with AI, massive increase in satellite surveillance, drones, and the increasingly sophisticated ability to work out through algorithms and wave technology and so on, pick up when a snorkel actually breaks the surface. Uh, how easy it is now to detect that and how hard it is to hide. And of course, the key thing about a submarine is one is its endurance and the other is its stealth. If you don't have the stealth, you might as well not be there. And of course, the other thing is about nuclear propulsion. It gives you endurance as well. You can get to a station multiples times quicker and you can stay there until you run out of baked beans, you know, really. The only thing that's stopping you is food. You can make your own water, you can make, you can recycle just about everything, but you run out of food. And that's when you have to go back to home port or you know, get resupplied. So that means you can be out there for months. No diesel electric submarine can do that. That's a bit of a game changer for Australia as it looks to operate in and around its exclusive economic zone and have the ability to do more than that and to act as a deterrent, much like the British submarines did against the Argentinians in the Falklands War in 1982, 40 years ago. One submarine, one submarine kept the Argentine Navy bottled up. Extraordinary. For fear of what that submarine could do to them. You know, the efficacy of a submarine remains. There are, there are those out there who say uh, technology is catching up. It hasn't yet. And yes, drones offer significant capabilities, but most pundits still think there's quite some time before it can operate over long distances independently. But fundamentally, the issue is there about technology sharing. And it's not just about nuclear propulsion, of course, it's about weapons and uh, other weapons, hypersonics and other uh, stockpiles of munitions and things like that. That means that you don't end up in a situation like Ukraine, you know, where I've noted the limits of the utility of comparing the situation in Ukraine. But one of the constraints in Ukraine is you, you run out of ammunition pretty quickly. So the stockpiles of ammunition for the high-tech stuff that we've got in Australia, we've got very small stockpiles. We, we can't last more than a couple of days, which is actually really probably not good enough, is it? If you, if you seriously, if you have a defence force, don't be half-baked about it. Don't put Australian lives seriously in harm's way without offering them a good chance of coming back home alive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you, John. I've appreciated you sharing your insight on the podcast today. It's been a great conversation. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Thanks for your thank time. Thank you very much, Jessica. It's been a real pleasure for me too. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Mr. Smith for our theme music. <laughs>